Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that ponders the philosophical and the practical aspects of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have some news stories including Could Your Car Keep You Safe from COVID-19? And in our first interview, while our colleague Fred Brain is racing at Bathurst in the historic category in his 1969 Monaro, we, however, caught up with one of his competitors, Chris Collett, who is at the other end of the car sizes. He is racing a Mini. And in our feedback segment, we have a reflection on an interesting webinar that occurred during the week. And we also get some reflections on what it is like to drive a very old car. And in our final interview, last week we raised the problem of complicated information systems on new cars. This week, Dean Oliver, as an owner of old cars but a tester of new cars, gives us his perspective of coping with the modern vehicle. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. So let's get the program rolling. First, the news. With the rise of concern about pollution from diesel engines, the poor air quality after bushfires and finally COVID-19, customers may well see that cabin conditions are a life or death issue and so filters are becoming a greater marketing tool. Chinese car maker Geely Auto announced in February that its forthcoming Icon electric SUV will include an N95 certified air purification system. Geely will invest about $54 million to build healthier cars with, quote, comprehensive virus protection, but they aren't claiming to prevent you getting COVID-19. Volvo and Lincoln will have advanced air filtering systems for their 2021 models. They use sensors to identify tiny particles and enhanced filters to clean the air that enters a car's cabin, a version of technologies that Tesla has offered since 2015. ANCAP has announced a three-star safety rating for niche utility vehicle, the Jeep Gladiator. The results were based on the Jeep Wrangler, which has the same core structural underpinnings, engine configuration and restraint package. ANCAP said that the five-seat dual-cab Gladiator ute offers levels of protection for adult occupants and vulnerable road users below that expected by consumers, with scores of 60% and 49% in respective areas. They highlighted A-pillar and cross-fascia beam failure, footwell intrusion, high seatbelt loads and excessive pedal movement. And not all safety features are created equal. The automatic emergency braking system fitted to the Gladiator does not offer the ability to detect or respond to potential crashes with pedestrians and cyclists. Consumers should always ask under what conditions safety devices operate, such as the speed range, the type of road user and whether it is day and or night. Volkswagen Australia has reported that they sold $26 million worth of vehicles of all types 
just on online ordering this year. Since making cars available for online purchase in January, Volkswagen customers have configured and bought 433 vehicles of all types, from the small Polo City car to the more business-like Crafter van. When a customer chooses the car and features they want, and pays a $500 deposit, the designated dealer makes contact within 48 hours to complete the purchase and arrange delivery. Customers can also choose vehicles not currently allocated to a dealer. Some research has shown that a significant some research has shown that a significant percentage of buyers do not take a car for a test ride. And now how easy it is to operate the infotainment system and receive clear information from, say, safety preventative features like lane assist is becoming more prominent than power and performance. If the description of a car for sale at auction says that it has no cylinders, no engine capacity and no transmission and is likely to cost a lot of money, you might think it is the very latest electric vehicle. But Gray's online auction house has just sold a 1971 Ford Falcon GTO Phase 3 for $400,000 with no engine or gearbox and approximately 32 places where it has been attacked with an axe. The GTHO Phase 3 is arguably the most collectible and valuable Australian muscle car of all time. The car sold is apparently a genuine one-owner, and the auction paper said that it had 67,423 miles on the odometer, but it has no key, no spare key, no owner's manual, and no service history, all of which seems rather academic. It is apparently scheduled for a $200,000 restoration. There have been regular calls for public transport to be made free to encourage its use. Now, Paris has for some users, and Los Angeles might implement this policy measure. In the past, the assumption has been that people will use public transport more and use their cars less. This has not always worked out quite so clearly, and the government, of course, loses revenue. But COVID has meant that public transport in many cases is fighting for its life, with even the Japanese super trains facing very difficult times. Paris started the process back in June 2018, with free fares for those aged 65 or over, bringing France capital into line with other countries such as the UK. In September 2019, children under 11 and all minors with disabilities were granted free travel, and middle and high school aged children were given a 75% discount. Details of the LA's proposal are not known. And that has been the news. While our resident mechanical engineer Fred Brain is racing his 1969 Monaro at Bathurst weekend in the historic class support events, I managed to catch up with his colleague and competitor Chris Collett. I asked him to describe his car. You're in a little mini, are you? Yes, it's car number 62. It's a Mini Cooper S, 1964. So is that basically like the car that won Bathurst in 66? My word, yeah, exactly. Same colour. Have you driven it at Bathurst before? I've driven at Bathurst before, but I have I have two Group N race cars. So my, I used another car last time I was here, but um, I have been here before, that's right. What's the most fearful part of the circuit? 
I reckon it's more fun. I mean, I don't. It's most, not so much fear. It's fun going probably through the top of the the mountain and down through skyline and and through those sections there of the Dipper and and Forest Elbow. It's incredible because the car's light. It turns quickly and easily, you know. So very exciting. I would say if you had to say the most fearful part of the mountain, it's probably just knowing that the car is 50 or 60 years old. The little wheels on it are spinning fast and you're, you're hoping that TV joints don't fall out and things like that. Perhaps fear was the wrong word. Perhaps adrenaline might have been better. It's a massive high. I think the mountain, you know, for me, whenever I turn up here, you know, like with a little car and I'm not a, a, a professional driver, it's just a, it's, it's just a amateur motorsport, but the hair goes straight up on the back of my neck as soon as you get out of the car and you, you're in Bathurst and it's a big, big mountain, a little car, you know the history of it and, um, Quite up there, you know, it's a, it's a bucket list type of moment for any of our, our cars here, our, our, our people. Do you get a good response from the fans? I reckon it's an excellent response, David. It's because the competition is, is great with the sort of David and Goliath small car, big car, which is a bit missing from sort of like the uh, V8 supercar sort of around these days. I think it sort of takes people back into a era where they have a connection with a certain type of car. It might have been their first car, it might have been... They were watching at Bathurst in 1966, so we get a lot of people coming across in their you know, 60s, 70s. They're still marvelled by you know, what the car can do in comparison to, say, a bigger car, a Mustang, where they're on the straights and they, you know, they have way more horsepower and top speed. Sort of incredible to watch around the, sort of the tighter parts of the circuit where you can, you can sort of mix it up with them and, and take back the disadvantage. How do you dance with those bigger cars? What I've found is... In a lot of the circuits around Australia, probably not so much Bathurst, but a lot of the circuits around Australia, there's, there's always a mixture of sectors there where it sort of bridges the, the gap between sort of horsepower cars and sort of cars which have sort of pretty good road handling. So the handling performance of the car probably outweighs its, its outright performance. I find also the way the car moves around the, the track is sort of it's quite unique in that if you jump on the brakes real hard it'll induce the car to sort of oversteer at the back and because you've got no power you've sort of got to half use the you've got to half use the way the car reacts to that sort of a a braking maneuver to steer the car and not kill your corner speed so your corner speed is is crucial you know so you can keep your corner speed up it means that you don't have to rely on small horsepower you can sort of just carry that corner speed through a corner what's your times compared to some of the bigger vehicles okay so compared to some of the bigger Bigger vehicles, I, I think the fastest of the Mustangs, which is a couple of categories racing within our combined historic group this weekend, the fastest NC cars will be around the 2 minutes 30. That's towards the top of the NC field. We run in Group NB, which Group NB is a uh, pre-1965 historic touring car. So the lap times that we, uh, we record are sort of between... Uh, two minutes 49 to around about three minutes. Most of the minis are sort of pretty competitive around about that sort of an area. That's a very fast time, given even the first V8s were doing when there wasn't a Caltex chase. Has tyre technology been a big factor in that? That's right. And to an extent, there is a technology gain. There is a, with the engineering skills and the tyre advances and so on. If you compare, say, the 
leading lap time of the minis in 1966, which were more a combination of a road-type race car as opposed to our cars, which are a um, historic touring car with a few more improvements there. The the winning lap time in 1966, I think, was a th- a three minutes and four seconds. So if you're doing a two minutes 49 now, I think the gain is in the tyre technology, the cylinder head advances, camshaft profiles. There's a whole whole lot of engineering sort of improvements there. We also have the benefit of now running a uh, limited slip diff in the car. We find really helps pull us out of a few of those corners and, and gives the the uh, front-wheel drive car much better drive out of the corners. You've had two practice sessions. Were they consistent in the, the track feel or was there a change in weather? How did you come out of those two sessions so far? Initially, we were straight out of a... Um, I mean, I haven't run this track since uh, 2013. So when I first went out in, in practice session one, I guess just getting a feel for the track. I'm, I'm not used to this car as well. It's, it's a different setup to my, my other Group N car, which is a lot softer suspension setting, a little, a little bit more forgiving. This one sort of moves around a bit more around the, the track, around the corners and so on. It, it's a little bit more tippy-toes. So I found that comparing the session one to session two, when I got more confidence with the car, my lap time sort of dropped to around about six seconds. It was mainly just due to more confidence in the car. That's what I was finding. But the, uh, the track surface all day has been excellent, nice and grippy. It's an incredible track, really is. In fact, the track surface is one of the reasons for improved times, I believe. I would have to think so too. How many races will you have at this Bathurst 1000 meeting? There's three races. We have a, a, a qualify session, which is first thing tomorrow. I believe we're, we're first out on track. And then race one, race two is on Saturday. And, and Saturday afternoon, we have a race three. And that's, that's our weekend in the, the uh, V8 Supercars on Sunday. It gives me a buzz to be at a track with the main game. You always have support because it's a car that people never expect to do what it can do. If you mix it up with the bigger cars... I think people are, are really are just amazed that a car can can do that. It's a common car. It's a it's a car which you can see Nana driving down to church, but to see it on a racetrack, breaking under a Mustang into some of these corners or some of the bigger, more high performance cars, I think it's sort of it's really is something special. Chris, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. That was excellent. Thank you. Have a great day and great weekend. See ya. And that was Chris Collett, who is the driver of car number 62, a 1964 Mini, in the historic category of support races at Bathurst. You're listening to Overdrive. And with some feedback, during the week I had to present and moderate a webinar run under the auspices of Engineers Australia, and it was titled Bridges, Transport and Social Aspects, Have We Met All the Objectives? I have a video of the presentation on our YouTube site. We talked a lot about elegant bridges and structures like the Sydney Harbour Bridge. That is a symbol of pride to the city. And in my video presentation, I answered the question, when was an arch first suggested that it would be part of the Harbour City? It's much earlier than you think. To find a video, you can go to YouTube and search for Driven Media Bridges. The thumbnail is a lovely picture of the Anzac Bridge or go through our website. 
and why not subscribe to the channel while you're there. Also on our YouTube channel is a short video. As we know, our specialist mechanic engineer Fred Brain is racing his Monaro at Bathurst. Years ago, when he was preparing it for the first event, I asked the late, great Peter Brock, who raced a series production model of the Monaro at Bathurst, if he had any advice about driving one of these classics. Here's what he said. My best advice is um, to put the brakes on very, very early. They've got nice steering, uh, they put the power down pretty well, but um, the braking department has to be respected. It's, it's not very strong. When Alan Finlay, whose family owned many Holdens, heard the comment, he said, if Brocky thought the Monaro's brakes were underdone, he should have tried earlier Holden models. Mum's FC was diabolical. One hard stop, then wait an eternity for cool down. And my EH was not much better. But all that aside, isn't it great to see a Monaro at Bathurst, even if Fred's is the only one? Now, Dean said the spectators appreciated with oohs and ahs these vehicles like admiring ancient monuments. And he said a monument on Mount Panorama at Bathurst is just as significant as the Acropolis on Mount Olympus at Athens. I like how Dean brings culture to this program. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, last week on the program, I mentioned that we'd had a test car that had caused us to stop on the side of the road on several occasions, but not because it had broken down, but because we stopped to try and work out the infotainment system. In one case, merely trying to find AM radio, as it turned out, it didn't have it. Who better to talk about the evolution of technology, the understanding of graphics and interaction than our resident artist, Dean Oliver. G'day, Dean. Hello, David. Good to talk to you. You have a story of an Alfa Romeo. Yes, David. It was some years ago and walking along the footpath and I noticed a fellow in his brand new Alfa Spider. The top was down so I could see him sitting in the car. He was looking at the instruction manual and pointing and trying to work out how to use the uh, the radio cassette player, as it probably was in those days. Did he do it just for a short while? No, I came back um, uh, 20 minutes or so later, and he was still there, getting even more confused. Dean, we drove three cars the other day in succession, a small Yaris, a Kia midsize SUV, and an Audi. The Audi is impressive with its graphics, isn't it? Tremendous technology, uh, wonderfully clear graphics, terrific to see like a Google Earth image in, in tremendous clarity and uh, really wonderful technology. It is the thing of modern technology, isn't it, that I really fear doing something that will be irreversible. I hate some modern technologies. Uh, you know my access of evil, as George W. Bush made the expression, for him, it was North Korea, Iran, and Iraq, I think. For me, it is Microsoft, Adobe, and Apple. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, there was Donald Rumsfeld with his uh, wonderful uh, known unknowns and then the knowns that we don't know and the unknowns that we think we don't know, <laughs> which I think really quite relates well to uh, car information systems. Uh, I wonder if there's not a need now for us to give us videos. 
that you can access a video which says, if you would like to do this, I know you might think it's illogical, but just become familiar with it and it'll start to flow. <laughs> yes, and you can watch a YouTube video while you're driving, which is probably not the safest thing to do. Modern cars now, BMWs is a, a classic example, are starting to give you the owner's manual on your screen, which actually is not a bad idea as long as you're not moving, in the sense that if you are stuck with a button, you can say, well, what's the relevant section of the manual? Because looking up the index at the back is not likely to help. And the other one is that Range Rover are now having an app which you hold your app over one of the controls in the photo using the camera and it will then dictate to you what that control actually does. Then you use a lot of graphics packages. You produce some lovely maps, glorious maps of great clarity on that. Do you use the latest up-to-date whiz-bang technology? To a certain extent, but I find I'm um, falling behind in technology and uh, I'm usually now one or two releases earlier than uh, it, it would be preferable. So it, it would be good to have a 17-year-old assistant who could, uh, who could do these things for me. But the technology is wonderful and uh, it's a, I, I think it's appropriate, it, it's appropriate technology rather than high technology. Chasing after constantly high technology is probably not as important as using appropriate technology. A colleague of mine described it this way. He said, uh, it's like a doctor taking your temperature. He can do it quickly, simply, effectively, and both personally. Whereas if you Google someone, they Google something, they will give you the average for the district, state, or national numbers, which, of course, is meaningless. Dean, of course, the Italians have a flair for style, and you spoke about the Alpha Spider driver who was struggling there for a while. Should we get a genius like Leonardo da Vinci, someone like him, to be able to design the interface? Um, that would be wonderful. Um, I mean, Leonardo was a, um, a true genius. And uh, as I watched the fellow reading his instructions, which had probably been translated from Italian into, into English to, to try and decipher the Alfa Romeo's radio, and I thought of Leonardo, and uh, of course Leonardo, the genius. Leonardo was—he wrote a lot of his manuscripts left. He was left-handed, and so he wrote—he wrote backwards with his left hand. But in order to read, you had to use a mirror. He did that just to, I think, to obscure his writing a bit, so that people couldn't really copy his thoughts precisely. And uh, he recorded them, I think, for his own needs. And I think the poor fellow in the Alpha may well have been reading Leonardo's instructions. Uh, written by a genius, but uh, unable to be interpreted by ordinary people. A little while ago, a number of years, I spoke to Toyota about the need for commonality, particularly as we were talking about sharing cars more, that maybe you won't own one and your neighbour one, but you might share them, or the fact that you may live in a household with several cars, that if you jump from one to the other, it can cause a difficulty. So maybe we should be aiming for some degree of commonality. After all, that's what we need to do with plug-in chargers, for example. The Toyota guy was appalled at that notion, that they had their own, quote, unique approach to it, 
And so you had to be able to enjoy the difference of, of their particular product. I still struggle. And by the way, I found Lexus interfaces for quite some time were not the ones that I would recommend. So there is great value in having at least symbols that might be the same. You know what I mean? There's a whole science of designing icons for computer touchscreens and the like, and icons which have international meaning. And, uh, I mean, everybody knows uh, those basic road signs and um, on-off switches and things like that. And an uh, enormous amount of care and knowledge goes into designing um, icons which are instantly recognisable. And uh, it's tremendously frustrating if, uh, if you can't sort of instantly reach for the thing you need to, um, to know in the car without stopping and uh, considering <laughs> having to look up the um, uh, instruction manual to, uh, to perform a simple task. It would be nice if it was just a bit more intuitive. Ah, intuitive. You said at one stage there, look up a YouTube video and they can be wonderfully helpful, except, of course, when you look it up and you're following it, and then realise that it's just been out of, out of date. It is the version beforehand, and something's changed. The number of times I've found helpful instructions, which have got 10 steps, but I get to 8, and suddenly 9 doesn't work, or it doesn't exist. Mm. Or you get to step 8, and then you realise that the instruction you've been guided to is actually three or four versions prior to the one you need. It could be years old. And so you're back to square one again. Tremendous technology and tremendous ability to search obscure YouTube instruction videos, but you do need to be careful. Yes, yeah. The thing about those instruction videos too is that they do ultimately, if you get the right one, tell you what to do, but it so lacks intuition that I have to write it down. I have to copy the screen and, and make notations. I have a file system of hints for programs I use so that when I go back to them and I can't remember how to get there and, and I, can't, I can't remember because it's not intuitive, I have to go back to my notes to find out how to do it, which is not the sort of interaction that you want. You want it to be spontaneous. And, and while I test cars and don't have time to learn, sometimes I don't have a lifetime to learn. <laughs> yes. All these things make just simply driving up to the shop incredibly uh, difficult and complicated, David. Perhaps we should walk, Dean. Ah, that may well be the, um, the hidden agenda in, in getting us to uh, use, use cars less and uh, become fitter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but of course, uh, I guess my, in years to come, my autonomous vehicle will take care of all these things for, for me and just sit back and uh, watch the passing parade. You did the test of the Subaru, which had facial recognition. Yes, which was um, interesting. I suppose now one probably couldn't wear a face mask while driving. Oh. So that may well um, affect that kind of technology. But I was aware that it was watching me and telling me that, uh, you know, I'd blinked too many times and was becoming a bit tired and it was time to pull over. There are really good safety issues there, but there's also an irritation level. It would be nice to turn that technology off when you don't need it. But it, it certainly is a long way from the, the days of the old Datsun 1600. Manual. Uh, yes, three pedals. Yes, a clutch pedal. And a choke as well, too. Yes. A choke. Ah, oh, so that, that's another story altogether, what cars used to have 
and we don't need any more. Dean, it is always wonderful to discuss subjects which range and bring in information from literature and art and culture. As always, I appreciate your time. It's been a wonderfully rambling conversation, David. Thank you. We specialise in rambling conversations here on Overdrive, where we were talking to our artist in residence, Dean Oliver, about trying to understand the new infotainment systems, which have incredible functionality, if only you can understand how to use it. If you have an example of your own on how you have struggled with the technology in your car, send us a note through the contact section of our website at drivenmedia.com.au. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Chris Collette, Dean Oliver, Brian Smith and Paul Just for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.